Investigators find Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins violated federal regulations in part by trying to influence an election for Suffolk DA. She announced her resignation yesterday. We'll have more on the findings and potential implications coming up on this Wednesday, May 17th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, artificial intelligence is advancing with breathtaking speed. I don't think anybody has a good sense of what's possible even 12 months from now, much less a few years from now. There are growing concerns that efforts by Congress to regulate AI will not keep pace with the technology. And many parents are worried about their kids losing themselves for hours on their phones. Turns out the teenagers are worried as well, and they have some good advice on how to get unhooked. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. This is WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden says he is confident the government will not default. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden continues to speak optimistically about reaching a deal with congressional Republicans. The president says House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, along with other congressional leaders, all agreed that there could not be a debt default. And uh, every leader in the room understands the consequences if we fail to pay our bills. And it would be catastrophic for the, uh, for the American economy and the American people <clears throat> if we didn't pay our bills. The president spoke before leaving on his trip to Japan, where he'll meet with G7 leaders to discuss the war in Ukraine and the global economy. But he's cutting his trip short and will no longer travel next to Australia. He instead plans to return to Washington this weekend in order to finish talks with congressional leaders. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Ukraine is heralding the extension of a deal that will allow the global export of Ukrainian grain from its Black Sea ports. NPR's Jonica Kisses reports from Dnipro, Russia, was threatening to block the deal. Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister Oleksandr Kubrakov confirmed in a Facebook post that the wartime grain deal has been extended until July 18th. The United Nations and Turkey brokered this deal last year to avert a worldwide food crisis, as many countries depend on Ukrainian grain. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was the first to announce that Russia had agreed to extend the deal for 60 days. Russia says sanctions-related restrictions on banking, transport, and insurance make it hard to export their own agricultural goods, some of which are included in this deal. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Dnipro. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex are used to encounters with fans like those following an event in New York City last night. But Britain's Prince Harry and his wife Meghan assert a line's been crossed. Their spokesperson issued a statement alleging that paparazzi engaged in a car chase after that event that almost turned catastrophic for the couple. NPR's Lauren Ferris says the couple's account evokes chilling memories of the 1997 fatal collision that claimed the lives of Harry's mother Diana, Princess of Wales, her partner Dodi Fayed, and their driver Henri Paul when their vehicle was chased by paparazzi in Paris. A statement from the office of Harry and his wife Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, says they were similarly pursued in New York last night by photographers in half a dozen cars with blacked out windows. And they say the chase lasted more than two hours, resulting in multiple near collisions. The statement says Harry, Megan, and Megan's mother were in the car together. NPR's Lauren Freyer, New York City police say there were no collisions, injuries, or arrests from the paparazzi encounter last night. 
The Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 408 points before the close. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two federal ethics investigations find U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins abused her power by attending a Democratic political fundraiser and seeking to influence a local election. The results of those probes into the state's top law enforcement official were released today. As WBUR's Walter Boothman reports, Rollins announced yesterday she will resign. The Department of Justice's inspector general says Rollins attended a fundraiser in Andover with First Lady Jill Biden, against the advice of her own staff. The report also finds the former Suffolk District Attorney leaked private DOJ information during an election to smear interim Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden and help her preferred successor, Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. Civil Liberties Attorney Harvey Silverglate says it's rare to see such clear violations by Senate-confirmed federal officials. She thought that she was operating in Suffolk County, Massachusetts, when she was operating in the United States of America. Rollins' lawyer says she'll speak after she officially resigns. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. In a statement this afternoon, Rollins' attorney Michael Bromwich said most of the allegations in the report amount to, quote, minor process fouls. He said Rollins could have fought the matter but had no interest in litigating them any further. The state auditor's office is halting plans by UMass Amherst to lay off more than 100 employees in its fundraising division and privatize the jobs. In a letter to the university's chancellor, Auditor Diana DiSoglio says under state law, privatization of the jobs cannot take place until certain criteria She said her office must first determine whether the plan saves the state money and provides at least the same level of service. Desaglio says until that happens, the plan violates the law and cannot proceed. A spokesman for UMass Amherst says the school will connect with the auditor to discuss the matter. The state's attorney general is warning residents about ticket scams. The reminder comes ahead of the summer concert and festival season. Andrea Campbell recommends you purchase tickets directly from the website of the performer or the venue. She says you can verify third-party vendors through the Better Business Bureau. The attorney general also recommends reporting scams directly to her website. 57 degrees, bright, breezy, pretty beautiful out there right now. Now, chilly overnight tonight, falling to the mid-30s. And then tomorrow, sunny skies again, turning milder up in the mid-60s. Again, 57 degrees now in Boston at 407. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BritBox with the new season of Grace, based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original series, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Generally speaking, businesses don't ask Congress to regulate them. So it was striking yesterday to hear one of the most prominent executives in artificial intelligence say this. We think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, And we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. That was Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, testifying before a Senate committee yesterday. Artificial intelligence is global, and Congress does not exactly have a reputation for being ahead of the technology curve. So what are the chances lawmakers could get their arms around this? And what would effective regulation look like? 
Paul Shari studies those exact questions. He is vice president at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Before we look globally, let's talk about what is happening here in the United States. Here's what Democratic Senator Peter Welch of Vermont said yesterday. I've come to the conclusion that it's impossible for Congress to keep up with the speed of technology. Paul, is that true, or do you see a valuable role for Congress to play here? Well, I think both those things can be true. There is definitely a valuable role for Congress, but there's a huge disconnect between the pace of the technology, especially in AI, and the pace of lawmaking. So I think there's a real incentive for Congress to move faster. And that's what we see, I think, members of Congress trying to do here with these hearings is figure out what's going on with AI and then what is the role that government needs to play to regulate this? How would you answer that question? What role should government play? I mean, regulation is such a broad and general term. Is there a consensus even among experts here? Well, there's there's certainly not a consensus. And I think part of it is that AI can mean so many different things. It can be facial recognition or AI used in finance or medicine. And there's going to be a lot of industry-specific regulation One of the things in the topic of the hearing and where some experts are are starting to talk about is regulating the most powerful AI models. AI models like ChatGPT or the newest version, GPT-4, they're sort of in a different class because there are these very general purpose systems that can do a whole wide variety of tasks. And one of the things that Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, who created these systems, ChatGPT and GPT-4, is calling for is regulations on the technology they're building, which is surprising. Um, And other experts are calling for that as well. And I think that's an area where some special regulatory attention is probably needed. Do you think we're more likely to see Congress do something narrow and specific, like, say, anything that's fake must be labeled as such, or do something broad, like create a body that will, at some point in the future, issue regulations? I mean, pessimistic answer, we're probably likely to see not very much. Um, But I would... (laughs) I mean, if we're being honest, that, that's been the story so far with social media, for example. But I think, you know, if we can get just a couple specific kinds of narrow regulation, there was some talk about a licensing regime for training these very powerful models. That probably makes some sense at this point. And then things like requirements to label AI-generated media, like you mentioned. Um, California's passed a law like this uh, called a Blade Runner law. I love this term uh, that basically says if you're talking to a bot, it has to disclose that it's a bot. That's a pretty sensible regulation. Artificial intelligence is a technology that exists all over the world, and many countries are pursuing it with wild abandon. If the U.S. imposes limitations, is that just going to hamstring the U.S. without actually eliminating the potential for harm? Well, we're going to need to get other countries on board with some kind of global AI governance over time. We're going to have to get other countries to adopt a similar approach. That seems now, even less thing, likely than getting Congress to agree on something. You're talking about Russia, China, like the U.S. all saying, here's the rules we're collectively going to agree to. I mean, Russia's pulling out of nuclear treaties. Do you think they're going to sign on to an AI treaty? Well, so here's the thing. The U.S. has leverage over what other countries are going to do with these very powerful AI systems because they require these very specialized chips to train the most powerful models. And those chips use U.S. technology. And so we've always seen the U.S. put in place export controls on these chips. And that's a point of leverage that the U.S. can have over other countries accessing this technology where, hey, if you don't agree to these rules and safety standards, you can't get access to the hardware you need to actually build and train these systems. Hmm. During the hearings yesterday, Missouri Republican Josh Hawley asked whether AI is more like a printing press or an atom bomb? Is it a useful or a deadly technology? 
your research focuses on AI and the military. Do you think it's hyperbolic to compare something like, I don't know, ChatGPT to a weapon that could kill huge numbers of people immediately? Well, I don't think ChatGPT is there, but one of the fears is what's coming next and the pace of AI development. And we've seen really astonishing gains in just the last 12 months or so. I don't think anybody has a good sense of what's possible even 12 months from now, much less a few years from now. And so would you choose printing press or atom bomb? Which do you think it's more like? Ooh, well, I mean, maybe nuclear technology is not a bad comparison because there are good uses like nuclear energy, but also bad uses like atom bombs. So what do you think a scenario without guardrails looks like a decade or so down the road? I mean, what what's your nightmare, whether it's, I don't know, killer robots coming for us all or something totally different from that. I think one of the risks is that we see wide proliferation of very powerful AI systems that are general purpose that can do lots of good things and lots of bad things. And we see some bad actors use them for things like helping to design better chemical or biological weapons or cyber attacks. And it's really hard to defend against that if there aren't guardrails in place and if anyone can access this just as easily as anyone can hop on the internet today. And so thinking about how do we control proliferation, how do we ensure the systems that are being built are safe is really essential. Paul Shari's latest book is called Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When we talk about climate change, there's a number that keeps coming up, a threshold. It's 1.5 degrees Celsius, or a little under 3 degrees Fahrenheit. In 2015, countries pledged to try to keep global warming to under an average of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Well, a new report from the World Meteorological Organization gives us a 2 in 3 chance to exceed that mark in the next five years. Tropical island nations will be among those most impacted by sea level rise and more powerful hurricanes. Colin Young joins me now from Belize. He's executive director of the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center. Welcome. Thank you, Elsa. Let me just start with, do you have any initial reactions to this report that there's a sizable chance we are going to exceed this 1.5 degree mark pretty soon? Well, I, I think the writing was on the wall that unless we saw the kind of committed actions and increased ambition from countries that are largely responsible for greenhouse gas emissions that this would happen. I think what the report did was to now put some likelihood numbers, Mm -hmm. and that is quite shocking. Well, one caveat. I mean, this report says that this could only be a temporary breach of 1.5 degrees, and it has to do in part because of the projected emergence of El Nino, a natural weather phenomenon. Does that caveat give any hope to you? No, I, it does not. Uh, I think there you have to look at the report in its totality. And while it made very clear reference to the fact that this is a temporary projection, it also says that there's a 98% chance that the next five years will be the warmest on record. Mm-hmm. So the trend is that everything is going in the wrong direction for us. I mean, given that richer countries are contributing the most to climate change and have the most ability to do something about this problem, what policy initiatives would you like to see happen to pressure these wealthier countries to do more to slow down climate change? Well, Elsa, we have the Paris Agreement. The science is absolutely clear. 
in terms of what we need to do. We need to cut global emissions by 45% by 2030, and we need to reach net zero by 2050. But rather than countries pursuing the kind of ambition that is required in terms of cutting emissions, we're seeing emissions going the wrong direction. It's actually increasing. We're seeing countries that are now embracing fossil fuel that is adding to the problem. And so as a region that is one of the most vulnerable regions in the world, what needs to be done uh, lacks the political will. And as a result of that rhetoric from the countries who are most responsible, Mm -hmm. then our region remains and is suffering at the front lines of climate change. We will continue to agitate. (laughs) We will continue to demand. But, you know, talk alone will not get us to where we need to be. Putting aside what can wealthier countries do to slow down climate change, in the meantime, what do you think rich countries should do to help poorer countries deal with the effects of climate change now? What would you like to see? I would like to see that we live up to the Paris Agreement, where countries had promised to deliver $100 billion U.S. dollars per year to assist vulnerable countries to adapt to the effects of climate change. We have failed in that regard. On the on the technology side, the Paris Agreement also provides for technology transfer that can help our countries, again, to increase the adaptive capacity uh, to the effects of, of climate change. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, climate change is responsible for a significant portion of the debt that our countries find ourselves in, we lack the fiscal space to adapt. And the rate of increase in warming is so fast that the effects of climate change will only worsen. So there's a massive financial gap, a capacity gap, and a technology gap that is required to help us adapt. That's what we'd like to see the developed countries do more of. Colin Young, Executive Director of the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center, thank you very much. Thank you, Elsa. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, the results of the federal investigations that prompted the resignation of U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins. And coming up next, advice from young people on how they can curb social media use. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Senior Medicare Patrol. Detect, protect, and report health care errors, fraud, and abuse. Be an engaged healthcare consumer. If you suspect fraud, visit MedicareOutreach.org. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting spirits. Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, closes May 29th. More at PEM.org. Wall Street stocks got a lift today. The Dow rose about one and a quarter percent. S&P picked up a little less, one and two tenths percent. The Nasdaq grew by a little more, one and three tenths percent. Rhode Island-based CVS Health is closing its clinical trial business. It launched the effort two years ago to recruit and enroll patients in trials for potential medical treatments. CVS says the decision this week comes after it evaluated the business against its long-term strategic priorities. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. 
If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with a new WBUR app downloaded at the App Store. It's sunny and windy out there right now that makes conditions pretty friendly to fire. There's a red flag warning in effect until 8 tonight. Brush fires can start and spread pretty rapidly. Overnight tonight should turn chilly down in the mid-30s, still windy. And then tomorrow, sunshine once again, a little bit milder up in the mid-60s. 57 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. About 95% of teens in the U.S. use some type of social media, and about a third say they use it constantly. At the same time, teens are facing a mental health crisis. Scientific evidence suggests these two trends are intertwined, that social media use can cause depression and lower life satisfaction. And while clinicians are trying to come up with solutions, an essential place to look for advice is from the teens and young adults who know social media the best. NPR's Michaeline Duclef has this story for our series, Living Better. Back when Emma Limke was 12 years old, many of her friends were already on social media. As each friend got a phone, she noticed something changed. Each one of them, as a result, was getting pulled away from kind of conversation with me, from hanging out with me, from even like playing on the playground, like hanging out outside at school. It felt as though my interactions were were dwindling. She thought there must be something so magical and amazing about these apps if they made her friends not want to talk to her. She begged her parents for a smartphone, and finally, they caved. And I got Instagram. And I remember for the first few months, I was in love with it. I followed, you know, Kim Kardashian to Olive Garden. It did seem magical. I still joke that my favorite moment was, I I think I, I commented, like, at Olive Garden, I love you. And they responded, we love you too. And I was, like, screaming around the house. I was like, this is the best day ever. But within a few months... Limke's time on the phone rose from one hour to five or six hours. As I began to scroll more, I felt my mental and my physical health really suffer. Limke is now age 20 and a student at Washington University in St. Louis. She's trying to help prevent teens from suffering the way she has. She's the founder of a project called Log Off. It's part of a growing movement by teens and young adults to help adolescents minimize the harms of social media while maximizing its benefits. Limke and a few others have a series of steps teens can take to have a healthier relationship with social media. First off, know what you're up against. Social media can connect you with new people and teach you things. They say it can also make your insecurities feel worse. Increase your fear of missing out. And research suggests it can worsen mental health problems. Here's Limke again. I'm someone who's already predisposed to issues with mental health, anxiety, depression. And I felt like I just was continuing in horrific, you know, mental health spirals, um, increased anxiety, deepened depression. And yet she found it hard to stop. 
Limke says teens need to know the goal of these apps is to keep you using them so you can see lots of ads. That's how the companies make money. And that's why it can become a habit. I used to check my phone first thing in the morning, last thing in the night, in the bathroom, while talking to people. And, or I was in class and I was checking my phone. That's Rajul Aora. He's 26. He says he felt like he wasn't really using social media apps, but instead these apps were using him. So overall, I could see that I had a toxic relationship with social media. He felt like he was addicted. He broke that addiction, but he didn't want to give up social media completely. Now he works to have a healthy relationship with apps. I am connected with people across the world. I need social media. Now he gives classes and workshops, helping teens do the same. And he says, first thing teens should do is a digital audit. Basically measure how much time you're spending on each app each day. Seeing these numbers can be transformative. There are many apps to do this. Screen time on Apple, rescue time on Android. For example, Sophie Kepler is 16 and she spends a lot of time on TikTok. Before I go to bed, when I wake up in the morning, when I'm at school, just you get so like involved, keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, like it's like constantly scrolling. For a high school English project, she decided to track how much she uses her phone. What she found shocked her. I realized that I was using it like a lot, a lot more than I thought. We're talking five to 11 hours a day on her phone. Apple Screen Time told her she picked up her phone 200 times a day. It definitely made me think about like, maybe I should limit myself, put restrictions on my phone. So I'm talking to everyone around me. Sophie says her mental health hasn't suffered, but she feels it has impacted her sleep and her schoolwork. So how do you restrict yourself? Add friction to your social media. Just as friction on the road slows down your car, friction on social media apps slows your usage. There are apps that will do this for you. They make it a bit harder for you to log in, scroll, or watch a video. Emma Limke recommends something called Habit Lab from Stanford University. It has 20 different ways of adding friction. Which would buffer my screen when I tried to enter. It would make me type in why am I even entering. Um, I had another app that basically made me take mindful breaths before every minute that I went on Instagram. And it would only allow me on for 10 minutes at the most. Did you find that helpful? Oh, my, I think my screen time decreased by like 80%. Limke says friction also helps you stop using social media mindlessly. It makes you pause and think, do you really want to watch this 10-minute video? We reached out to both TikTok and Meta, Instagram's parent company, and both pointed us to tools they've developed to help kids cut down their time online. Alison So is 20 years old and a student at Michigan State University. He was also spending lots of time on his phone, and it was getting in the way of his real life. For me... I really like um, art and I'd see a lot of, you know, people posting art on TikTok or on Instagram and I'd be like, oh man, I wish I could do that. Then he realized he could do that if he stopped spending so much time scrolling and started practicing art instead. I was like, okay, I'm going to put the phone down and have my, my long hobby for the day be making art. And this is key. Enrich your life offline. Having alternative hobbies and relationships disconnected from the phone makes it easier to cut down your hours online. You know, I've started to make myself do like a long form sort of entertainment thing every day, whether that's reading or drawing or painting or making myself go talk to a friend or something. So that's my favorite thing to do. 
because it's like a group activity. Finally, the last piece of advice might come as a surprise, but teens say it over and over again. Go get help from your parents. Ask them to make a few reasonable goals, like no phones in the bedroom or at meals. But so says parents need to follow these rules too. They're saying like, hey, like I'm going to get off my phone because I know my parents use their phones a lot as well. And it's it feels like when I was younger, it felt weird for them to say, hey, get off your phone. My dad's on Facebook still. Hmm. Maybe it's time for the moms and dads to do a digital audit too and add some friction to our apps. Michaeline Ducleff, NPR News. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Pretty chilly out there, relatively speaking. It's in the mid-50s now. Should fall all the way to the mid-30s overnight tonight. A nice clear night ahead. Tomorrow, mainly sunny skies again. A little bit milder. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Friday could top 70 with sunshine once again. Coming up on WBUR, as all things considered, a closer look at the allegations against Rachel Rollins that were released today, one day after Massachusetts' top law enforcement official resigned. That's coming up in about five minutes. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. TheMusicEmporium.com. Joe Caruso, owner of The Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden says there's work to do on the global stage as he heads to Japan to consult with allies on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's assertive influence in the Indo-Pacific. Biden left Washington one day after high-stakes talks with congressional leaders ended without a deal over raising the nation's debt ceiling. Biden has canceled a visit to Australia next week, saying he will be in constant contact with negotiators back home while he's away. Here's White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. The work that we need to do bilaterally with Australia through the Quad and with the Pacific Islands is work that can be done at a later date, whereas the final stretch of negotiations over the debt limit um, or over the budget uh, cannot be done at a later date. The Treasury Department has warned that action is likely needed by June 1st to avoid an unprecedented default. 
On Capitol Hill, House Democrats are introducing a resolution to expel embattled Congressman George Santos. NPR's Windsor Johnson says the New York Republican was recently indicted on a number of felony charges, including wire fraud and lying to Congress. Democratic Representative Robert Garcia says the resolution is a long overdue effort to remove Santos from office. He is an embarrassment to the House and to the country. People want better from us and they want honest and ethical government. We know that in this House we receive classified briefings and George Santos should not have access to our country's most guarded secrets. A number of House Republicans have also called for Santos to step down. Others, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, have supported Santos, whose vote is crucial in the GOP's slim majority in the chamber. The resolution, which would need a two-thirds majority to pass, is expected to trigger a vote later this week. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's a risk of both fire and ice today in Massachusetts. A brush fire warning is in place due to extremely dry air in the region. National Weather Service meteorologist Kevin Kadima says the same dry air is responsible for a freezing weather watch that will go into effect overnight tonight. So that's going to allow temps to drop into the 20s in some locations in the outlying areas and um, even the low to mid-30s near the uh, near the coastline. It certainly is anomalous to, to see freezing temperatures um, you know, this late into the season. Kadima says it's likely the last round of cold weather for the season. The mayor-elect of Salem says he's already at work on the next fiscal budget. Yesterday, Dominic Pangalo won the election to replace former Salem mayor and current lieutenant governor Kim Driscoll. Pangalo had been Driscoll's chief of staff. He says he'll prioritize education and housing in Salem. He wants new zoning rules that would require developers to build more units of affordable housing. Boston Celtics continue their quest for another NBA championship. They take on the Miami Heat tonight at the Garden in Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals. WBUR's Fausto Menard has a preview. These same two teams have met in the Conference Finals three of the past four years. Last year, the Celtics prevailed, winning the series in Game 7 on the road. This year, Boston has the home court advantage. The Celtics will be at full strength tonight, with no players listed as likely to miss the game with injury or illness. Miami will be without Tyler Hero and Victor Oladipo, who combined for more than 30 points a game in the regular season. Tip-off tonight is scheduled for 8.30. The winner of this series will play either the Denver Nuggets or the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA Finals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. And Canal Street in front of the TD Garden will close at 5.30 tonight to two vehicles for the duration of the playoff game. The closure allows fans to gather and cheer on the seas in the street. It's 4.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Lovely out there right now. 57 degrees, so a bit on the cool side. Pretty chilly overnight tonight, down in the mid-30s, still windy. And then tomorrow, bright skies again, turning a little bit milder. Should be up in the mid-60s. 57 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. 
with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two new scathing federal reports shed light on why Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins has announced that she is resigning this week. The reports say Rollins violated federal ethics laws by engaging in political activity. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been following the story and joins us now to talk about it. Hi, Deb. Hi, Lisa. So these two reports outline new violations uh, by Rollins, some allegations that sound pretty serious. Tell us about them. Yeah, that's right. One is by the Justice Department's Office of the Inspector General. The other is by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, and it described Rollins' political activities as, quote, one of the most egregious violations, end quote, that it's ever investigated. Now, the biggest allegation is that Rollins tried to influence the local political race for her previous post as Suffolk County District Attorney and lied about it. Political activity by federal employees is prohibited under the federal ethics law known as the Hatch Act. And former federal prosecutor Brad Bailey, who is now a criminal defense attorney, says that federal prosecutors are well trained about how that law bars any type of political activity. Let's listen. You can't actively engage in a partisan campaign for political office. That includes fundraising. That includes giving political and campaign advice. And when you look at what what is alleged here and what the inspector general found, that was violated on all sorts of levels and in all sorts of ways. And actually, Lisa Bailey says when he was a federal prosecutor, those in the office were not allowed to even have political bumper stickers for local candidates on their cars. So the involvement in the political race for her successor, Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden, Uh, seem to be the most serious violations. How did she allegedly at least try to influence the race? Well, the federal reports released today say that Rollins leaked non-public Justice Department information to the press to try to harm Suffolk DA Hayden. The reports also say Rollins initially lied about being the leak of that information, but was later found to be the source. The investigations say Rollins worked to help Hayden's opponent in last year's election, Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. The report describes Rollins as being Arroyo's de facto candidate campaign advisor, exchanging about 380 texts and encrypted messages with him in the two months leading up to the primary election. Another former federal prosecutor I spoke with, Robert Fisher, who worked with Rollins when she was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office about 15 years ago, says he's surprised by these reports that came out today. And what they suggest to him is that Rollins was having a tough time staying out of politics. Unfortunately for her, she had just come from being Suffolk County DA and and running an effective campaign and really being a great advocate for the citizens of Boston. And that just doesn't translate to becoming uh, or being the, the U.S. attorney. And we should say, Lisa, that D.A. Hayden's office has released a statement saying that the report is about the conduct of one individual, and the Suffolk D.A. maintains a strong relationship with the U.S. Attorney's Office. There were mentions of other violations as well. What were they? 
Well, the report describes how Rollins was advised not to attend a political fundraiser with First Lady Jill Biden last year, and she attended anyway. The other violations cited in the Inspector General's report mention Rollins soliciting Boston Celtics tickets for a local youth group and for herself and having unauthorized travel expenses. And what has Rachel Rollins been saying in response to these allegations? Well, her attorney released a statement today calling the violations, quote, minor process fouls. Uh, That statement said Rollins was not interested in litigating over the violations outlined in these reports, and she believes the better course is to step down and end the matter. So she said yesterday she's going to be resigning. By doing so, does she avoid criminal charges? Well, that's that's not entirely clear. I mean, some legal advisors say she could be prosecuted uh, if there are charges about lying and uh, being involved in an election or trying to influence an election. Some say her license to practice law could be affected or her resignation could be considered enough punishment and she could just depart. If she follows other U.S. attorneys, she, she might take a job in a big law firm. And what happens from here in terms of the office? Well, Rollins uh, said she's submitting a resignation to the president by Friday. Her first assistant, Josh Levy, is expected to take over as interim U.S. attorney. Most of the folks I spoke with expect that an interim will remain at the helm until after the next presidential election, when the president would then determine who to appoint, and then that would have to be confirmed by the Senate. WBR's Deborah Becker, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. In San Francisco, where property crime has become a political flashpoint, the fatal shooting of a black transgender man outside a drugstore has touched a nerve. More on that in a bit. First. Today, the president of Ecuador dissolved Congress just days before legislative opponents were getting ready to impeach him. In a national broadcast, President Guillermo Lasso said that he had no other option but to rule by decree. Es una decisión democrática. No solo porque es constitucional. He's saying there this is not just a democratic decision, it was a constitutional one. For more, we're joined now by NPR South America correspondent Carrie Kahn. Hey, Carrie. Hi. Okay, so Lasso is now solely in charge of the country. Like, how is he able to do that? How is he able to take power from the opposition Congress so quickly? He invoked this never-before-used measure in the Constitution to dissolve Congress and rule by decree. He says he had no other option because the country was ingovernable with such an obstructionist Congress dominated by parties opposed to him. This clause is called the Muerte Cruzada, and loosely translated, it just means mutual death. Since with this option, both President Lasso and the legislature will have to um, face elections. And the president says he'll call for those to happen immediately, and he has to do that according to the Constitution. Both the Army and the National Police, which is blocking lawmakers from entering the National Assembly, have pledged their support to Lasso and this plan. And Lasso was about to be impeached, right? Tell us why. The opposition uh, did seem like it had the votes to impeach him, and his removal could have been as early as this week. The charges are a bit spurious. Opponents say he allowed corruption to take place, and it was his omission of duty doing nothing to stop the corruption. That is what is impeachable. Uh, This is about a state oil contract that took place many years ago. Lasso denies any wrongdoing, but the conservative ex-banker is not popular in Ecuador right now. Okay, well, I mean, will new elections solve Ecuador's political problems? 
Look, Ecuador has seen a terrible spike in crime lately as organized crime gangs, um, drug gangs, have been fighting for territory. The country is now a new transit hub for trafficking by Mexican drug cartels that have moved in there and using the ports mainly to send drugs to Europe. Um, I spoke with Sebastian Hurtado. He's a political consultant with the group Profitas in Quito today. He says the political stalemate between Lasso and the opposition needed some sort of resolution since nothing was getting done. Having early elections, even though it might be really disruptive, hopefully at the end might provide a new political scenario that looks better than what we are living through right now. He sounds pretty optimistic there, but he says the next few weeks will be very difficult. Um, The largest and most powerful indigenous federation in the country, their strong opponents of Lasso, have called him a dictator now and vowed to oppose his ruling by decree. I mean... I have to say, Carrie, it feels like we have seen quite a bit of political upheaval in South America lately. Is what's happening in Ecuador part of some larger trend, do you think? There have been a lot of unrest in Brazil earlier this year and in and Peru, the situation continuing there now in Ecuador. Um, I asked Will Freeman that question. He's a fellow and a Latin American expert at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, you know, is this situation in Ecuador means uh, trouble for democracy in the region? He said opposition parties throughout this hemisphere are pushing democratic practices to the limits. These democratic tools, checks and balances, impeachment trials being used sometimes for anti-democratic purposes, that's pretty dangerous. Uh, We'll have to see how quickly democracy is restored uh, in Ecuador with these new elections, um, which are expected within three to four months. That is NPR's Carrie Khan speaking to us from her base in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you so much, Carrie. You're welcome. San Francisco's district attorney is facing a fierce backlash after declining to press charges this week against the Walgreens drugstore security guard who shot and killed a man who was shoplifting from the store. From KQED in San Francisco, Marisa Lagos has our story. The April 27th killing of Banco Brown by security guard Michael Anthony immediately sparked outrage in San Francisco, a city where brazen shoplifting has become a political flashpoint amid a fentanyl crisis and a widening chasm between the wealthy and impoverished. Video released Monday by prosecutors shows Brown, a black transgender man who was homeless, being confronted by Anthony as Brown tries to leave the store with stolen goods. Security video footage shows a nearly minute-long struggle, during which Anthony, who's also black, has Brown in a headlock and lays on top of him. Anthony eventually lets him go, but as Brown is leaving, he turns around on the threshold of the doorway and gestures toward Anthony. At that point, Anthony shoots Brown once. He was pronounced dead at a local hospital. Outrageous, unconscionable act of violence on the part of the security officer. The facts from the video do not support That's attorney John Burris, a civil rights lawyer representing Brown's family. He and other critics say Banco was not a threat and that the video shows Anthony, the security guard, as the aggressor. District Attorney Brooke Jenkins, though, says the video, which has no audio, isn't the only relevant evidence. And that is why we must listen to the security guard statement, the witness statements, and everything else in order to look at the full picture of the incident. Jenkins says she didn't believe prosecutors could prove a case against the security guard in court. Anthony told investigators that during the altercation, Brown said he had a knife and threatened to stab Anthony, though no weapon was found. And witnesses reported Brown spitting at Anthony and lunging back toward him as the shot was fired. Here's D.A. Jenkins. And at this time, 
There is nothing to rebut his statements regarding the fact that he acted in self-defense. Jenkins has been under pressure to release the video and other evidence in the case for weeks, ever since announcing on May 1st that her office wouldn't charge Anthony. Following outcries, she reversed course and said charges were still under consideration. On Monday, she released a slew of evidence, including the security video, as she declined to file charges again. Instead of quelling criticism, though, that evidence seems to have raised more questions. County Supervisor Aaron Peskin is asking state and federal officials to investigate Brown's shooting. This is not who we are. Stealing a bag of candy does not warrant what is, in essence, the death penalty. I don't think that the district attorney's behavior in this case is making San Francisco safer. Jenkins was already a divisive figure in San Francisco. She was appointed DA by San Francisco's mayor after helping lead a heated recall campaign to oust her progressive predecessor. That campaign helped shape a national narrative of San Francisco as a city where crime and open-air drug use are out of control. And Jenkins has received criticism in recent months for dismissing charges against police officers involved in on-duty shootings. But as San Francisco struggles to figure out how to rein in shoplifting, the repercussions of Brown's death could reach far beyond this case. Members of the transgender community here continue to express anger. Honey Mahogany, chair of the local Democratic Party, notes trans people are far more likely to be impoverished and homeless. The reality is that this could have been any number of people. Every one of us has had a low point. And to think that, you know, in that moment of vulnerability and in that moment of trying to survive, that you could be shot dead. For now, protests continue. And Burris, the Brown family attorney, plans to file suit against the security firm that employed Anthony and Walgreens. For NPR News, I'm Marisa Lagos in San Francisco. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR this afternoon. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, new adaptations of Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. How far can they stray from the original? That's just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Windy and chillier than it has been pretty much all week. 57 degrees now should fall all the way to the mid-30s overnight tonight. A cold wind tonight. Tomorrow inching up to about the mid-60s. Then Friday should rise to just about where the week began in the low 70s. This is WBUR. It's 4.50. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. How far should scriptwriters go when they're adapting literary classics? Should writers, for example, introduce sex scenes or culture war politics? Those questions are being asked right now in Britain, where there's a flurry of new productions based on one of Charles Dickens' best-loved novels. Philip Reeves reports. Who is it? We're in a hall in a community centre in Frodsham, a small market town in northwest England. The play is Great Expectations. Come near. 
Let me see you. Come close. The actor is a great-great-grandson of Dickens himself. Do you know what I touch here? Your heart broken. Gerald Dickens is playing all the parts, from the central character, Pip, to one of English literature's most mesmerising creations, Miss Havisham, the recluse seeking vengeance against men after being jilted at the altar. Love her! Love her! Gerald has been staging adaptations of his great-great-grandfather Charles's works around the world for 30 years, in theatres and libraries, in schools and on ships. Today, the hall's almost full. Well, what's wonderful from a family member's point of view is that people still want to, to soak up Dickens's work in whatever medium, whatever format it's offered in. It was me what done it. It was me what made you a gentleman, Pip. <laughs> there is still that love for his, his stories, his characters, his moral messages, and, and that's just so exciting for me. Turning a chunky Victorian novel into a 90-minute one-man show isn't easy. Gerald Dickens had to leave out a lot, yet he's faithful to the story. All the dialogue was written by his ancestor. I think if people come to see me, they come to see a relation of Charles Dickens performing the works of Charles Dickens they're going to expect the works of Charles Dickens. Great Expectations has been adapted for stage and screen dozens of times. I sometimes have sick fancies. And I have a fancy I should like to see someone play. A 1946 movie by David Lean stuck closely to the text and won Oscars. A 1998 version was set in New York instead of England. Even South Park has had a crack at the story. What? what are you doing here, you little whippersham? Oh, hello. Why, you look like an escaped convict. Did we break you wakeys out of prison? Now there's an addition to that list. A TV series from Britain's BBC that's bleak and gritty and unlike any previous adaptation. Because I will teach you to be a vulture and that with blood dripping from your beak, I will teach you how to be a gentleman. I hate it. In my opinion, virtually nothing about it was, was laudable. Paul Graham is Honorary General Secretary of the Dickens Fellowship, the worldwide association of Dickens enthusiasts. He acknowledges adapting Dickens means making changes, but... It was taking the title Great Expectations, producing something completely different. I mean, it, it just changes everything. The script is by Stephen Knight, creator of the hit series Peaky Blinders. Graham objects to Knight's treatment of Dickens's characters. Changing the way they behave, changing the way they speak, getting rid of any humour, making everyone, <laughs> every character unsympathetic. Pip, the central character, attempts suicide. He swears like a trooper. He smokes opium. So, by the way, does Miss Havisham. Dickens didn't write much about sex, let alone sadomasochism. In Knight's version, Pip's sister lashes a naked Uncle Pumplechook with a whip. Viewers were stunned, including Paul Baldwin, head of comment at Britain's Daily Express. My jaw was on the floor because it was just insane. It's not true to the book and it kind of insults the characters and the author. Stephen Knight has said Dickens couldn't write about sex because of the prevailing moral climate. So he's imagining what Dickens might have written. Humbug says Paul Graham of the Dickens Fellowship. Just to say that if Dickens had had the freedom to write sex scenes, then he would have written sex scenes. I just, I just don't buy it. 
The other day, the BBC broadcast the final episode of the series. In the novel, Miss Havisham dies after the wedding dress that she constantly wore finally catches fire. When Paul Baldwin saw Knight's version, his jaw hit the floor again. In this version, she pulls out a flintlock and shoots dead the lover who spurned her. It felt a bit like she should have been in Die Hard 5 or something <laughs> rather than Great Expectations. The series triggered fury on social media. Yet Knight's production, which has a diverse cast, is winning some plaudits for empowering female characters and introducing new storylines damning slavery and colonialism. That's what's exciting about adapting literature, is that everyone has their own take on it. Ryan McBride is creative director at the Mercury Theatre in the English town of Colchester. It's staging a version of Great Expectations this month. So is the actor Eddie Izzard, whose one-woman show opens in London's West End. McBride thinks Knight's series may have gone a little too far, but he liked it overall. Adaptations need to move beyond the original, he says. I genuinely believe that in this day and age, it's our, it's our job as artists to reinvent and keep it fresh. And if that's the way that Stephen Knight's doing it and bringing that story to a whole new generation, then great. I'm all for adaptations. I think it's great to make things relevant. And I think that absolutely, you know, when a social conditions such as slavery was around at the time, it's really good, I think, to put it in. Author Lucinda Hawksley is an expert on Dickens. She's also his great-great-great-granddaughter. But I find it a bit gratuitous when they've got to put something that's so counter to what the characters would have done, because that's just titillating a modern audience, really, isn't it? Hawksley thinks that when an adaptation differs greatly from the book, there's a case for changing the label on the tin. The opening titles maybe shouldn't state, as Knights does, that it's based on the novel. Inspired by would be better. You know, if you're not sticking to it, then why pretend that you are? Charles Dickens would not have been surprised by any of this. He published novels in instalments. Emily Bell is editor of the journal The Dickensian. She says people were adapting Dickens' stories for the Victorian stage even before he'd finished writing them. So they would make up an ending and Dickens was appalled. And there's a, a wonderful anecdote of him going to see a performance of Oliver Twist and lying down on the floor of his box and refusing to get up until it's over because he, he really dislikes it that much. Back in Frodsham Community Centre, Dickens's great-great-grandson Gerald winds up his show. At a question-and-answer session afterwards, he raises Stephen Knight's BBC series because he knows it's on everyone's mind. The question I thought you were going to ask is, what do you think of the current adaptation of Great Expectations? <laughs> 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 Gerald Dickens didn't think a lot of it either. I don't particularly like it because it doesn't work for me as a piece of art or a piece of theatre. Even so, he has no problem with seemingly outrageous adaptations of his great-great-grandfather's magnificent stories. Shootout, whips, opium and all. Whatever you do to Dickens, it's never going to damage Dickens. It's never going to taint the original. Uh, he's bigger. He's, he's bigger. bigger. He's bigger than that. Philip Reeves, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England on Queen Mary 2. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining and entertainment, cunard.com crossing. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income and social security. fisherinvestments.com 
Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive, nature.org solutions. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. After years of drought in California, big winter storms have led to flooding. The state is trying to capture as much water as it can, but the results so far are mixed. There are you know, billions of gallons of water just flowing right through us, right on by. The efforts to replenish California's underground aquifers coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the largest book publisher in the country has joined free speech group Pen America in filing a Florida school district lawsuit to push back against book banning. Mifeprestone, a medication used for abortion, is the subject of arguments today in a federal appeals court case that could make the drug illegal. And Dr. Roland Griffiths helped cancer patients find emotional peace through psychedelics. Then came his own terminal diagnosis. We'll speak with him. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden said today he believes the U.S. will avoid an unprecedented and potentially catastrophic debt default. The president speaking before leaving for the G7 summit meeting in Japan. We had a productive meeting yesterday and uh, with all four leaders in the Congress. It was civil and respectful and everyone came to the meeting, I think, in good faith. I'm confident that we'll get the agreement on the budget America will not default. Biden says he believes lawmakers will come together because, in his words, there is no alternative. The president yesterday announced he was canceling some of his scheduled overseas trip to return to Washington early. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today said he believes a deal to raise the debt ceiling is doable by Sunday. Today, Biden has said he hopes to hold a news conference on the matter. Missouri's attorney general has withdrawn guidelines that would have placed onerous restrictions on gender-affirming care for transgender people. St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum has the story. Attorney General Andrew Bailey said he pulled his emergency rules because the Missouri legislature passed legislation last week barring gender-affirming care to minors. His guidelines also required transgender adults to get extensive talk therapy and to, quote, treat and resolve mental health issues before accessing hormone therapy or gender transition surgery. Missouri Republican Senator Bill Eigel isn't ruling out restricting gender-affirming care for adults in the future. I think there's going to be a time and a place for a discussion about whether or not we need to expand that beyond 18 years old. Before Bailey pulled the rules, a St. Louis County judge halted the guidelines until late July. 
For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in St. Louis. Pilots at package shipper FedEx have voted overwhelmingly in support of a strike. The Airline Pilots Association, union representing pilots, saying that 97% of members who participated in the vote, 99%, authorized union leaders to call a strike if need be to achieve a new contract with the company. FedEx in a statement said it remains in what it called productive negotiations with its pilots. Homebuilding activity picked up last month. NPR Scott Horsley reports on the latest numbers from the Commerce Department. Builders broke ground on more homes in April than they did the month before. Housing starts rose 2.2% last month. Permits for future construction of single-family houses were also up, although permits for apartment buildings were down. Target stores reported a smaller-than-expected drop in quarterly profits, but the discount retailer offered a cautious forecast for the spring selling season. Target's getting plenty of customers in its stores, but they're mostly buying groceries and other necessities rather than products that might carry a larger profit margin. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today amid hopes of a debt ceiling deal. The Dow jumped 408 points to 33,420. The Nasdaq was up 157 points. The S&P rose 48 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A pair of federal investigations find U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins violated several ethics rules. A Department of Justice report out today found Rollins tried to influence the election for Suffolk County DA. That's the role she left to become U.S. Attorney. The probe found she'd leaked non-public Justice Department information that was detrimental to the interim DA Kevin Hayden in order to help another candidate, Ricardo Arroyo. A separate investigation by the Office of Special Counsel found she violated a law barring federal officials from partisan political activity. Both reports found she inappropriately attended a political fundraiser featuring First Lady Jill Biden. Rollins' attorney issued a statement today. It said the violations amount to minor process fouls and that she has no interest in litigating any further. Rollins says she'll resign by the end of this week. Lawyers for the Massachusetts Air National Guardsmen accused of disclosing classified documents from the government say any comparison to leaker Edward Snowden is wrong. Snowden is American computer intelligence consultant who leaked highly classified information from the National Security Agency a decade ago. He fled to Russia and has been there since 2013. This Friday, a judge is expected to decide whether guardsman Jack Teixeira should be held pending trial on charges of posting top-secret documents online in private group chats. Prosecutors argue that he, like Snowden, could flee the U.S. with the help of a foreign adversary interested in the information that he has. His attorneys want him released on bail to his father. And animal rights advocates are hoping to enhance protections for pets in kennels and boarding facilities in Massachusetts. They rallied on the statehouse steps today in support of Ollie's Law. Ollie was a labradoodle who died in 2020 after it was attacked by several dogs in a western Massachusetts kennel. Allie Blank with the Animal Rescue League says Ollie's law would set minimum housing and care requirements at kennels, including staff-to-dog ratios. This bill is, is really a common-sense measure. It is designed to provide bare minimum standards for these facilities. We already have regulations around pet shops, around shelters, around rescues in the Commonwealth. There are currently no regulations, though, for kennels in Massachusetts. In the forecast, bright skies, some fair weather clouds around in the mid-50s, now falling all the way to the mid-30s overnight tonight, a clear night ahead. Tomorrow, mainly sunny skies, a little bit milder, up in the mid-60s. Friday could top 70 degrees. 56 now in Boston at 5.06.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BritBox with the new season of Grace, based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original series, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. A medication called mifepristone was the subject of a lively hearing at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans today. This is a high-stakes lawsuit about nationwide access to a drug that is used widely for abortion and miscarriage treatment. NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin listened to the hearing, and she is here to tell us about it. Hi, Selena. Hi, Ari. Review what this case was all about for us. So last November, a group of abortion rights opponents filed a complaint arguing that FDA should never have approved this medication more than 20 years ago and also shouldn't have expanded access to the drug in 2016 by changing the rules around who can prescribe it and allowing it to be dispensed by telehealth. Defending mifepristone was the Department of Justice representing the FDA and Danco Pharmaceuticals, which makes mifepristone. It's actually the only medication that the company makes. And how did the hearing go? Well, this was a panel of three conservative judges. All were appointed by Republican presidents, one by President George W. Bush and the others by President Trump. And right off the bat, it seemed like the Department of Justice and Danco, the drug maker, were going to have a tough audience. The first opening statement was cut off almost immediately with questions. Um, Here's a clip to give you a flavor. This is Deputy Assistant Attorney General Sarah Harrington representing FDA, and she was taking questions from Judge Corey Wilson. They're discussing whether FDA's changes that made mifepristone more available causes more problems. For instance, if someone's abortion is not complete after 14 days. Those people will go back to their doctor and discuss with their doctor. Not if they didn't get it from a doctor. I mean, the FDA's relaxed the requirement that the provider even be a doctor. They'll go back to their provider and discuss with their provider who doesn't. Nurse midwife? Yes, and discuss with their provider the next step. But even in that small population, mail order pharmacy is not the prescriber. I mean, it just strikes me that what the judges put the judges put some tough questions to the plaintiff's attorney too about whether the ER doctors who brought this case and oppose abortion were harmed by the fact that FDA approved this medication. And that's a key question because if they're not harmed by FDA's approval, then they don't have standing. Were there any unexpected moments or surprises in the hearing? Yeah. You know, I was expecting to hear about misoprostol because the medication that was the subject of this hearing, mifepristone, is never or almost never used alone. It's used as the first medication in a two-drug regimen with misoprostol. And this is a big issue because misoprostol can be used alone for medication abortion. It hasn't been totally clear if the plaintiffs are asking the court to say medication abortion using any medication should be illegal, or if they're asking the court to weigh in only on mifepristone. That barely came up at all in the hearing, which surprised me. So the other thing was that all the judges really took issue with the defendants calling this case unprecedented and criticizing the Texas judge's decision in April that could have blocked FDA's approval completely. There were a lot of questions about whether the language was accurate or necessary, a lot of back and forth about tone. So that decision by the Texas judge in April caused a huge reaction as people waited to see whether medication was about to be pulled off of shelves. Is that likely to happen after the appeals court reaches its ruling? What happens next? Yeah, it's not likely to happen again. There is not likely to be any changes right away. The Supreme Court has put a hold on any changes to access to mifepristone for a good long while. OBGYNs are saying that patients are really confused about this, so it's something that I want to make very clear. Mifepristone is currently legal. It is still available right now. 
But most court watchers expect a ruling from these judges in the coming weeks or months. It will almost certainly be appealed to the Supreme Court, which may hear arguments in the fall and issue a decision in the spring. But we're all guessing here. We'll have to see what happens next. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin following this case up through the courts. Thank you very much. Thank you. From extreme drought to extreme floods, this is what California is experiencing this year after a series of epic winter storms. And it's a window into the state's climate future. You see, California is trying to capture as much water in wet years like this one as it can. And its biggest storage container is underground. But as NPR's Nathan Rott reports, in the largely developed Central Valley, it's hard to figure out how to get water there. It seems pretty simple in theory, right? For much of the last decade of water shortages, California has drained its underground aquifers to meet the growing thirst of towns and farms, even causing the land itself to sink. So now, when there's too much water, why not just put it back underground? That's what Khalid Bali, an irrigation specialist with the University of California, is trying to do at this research plot in the Central Valley. Groundwater recharge is basically taking excess flood water and putting it in the underground aquifer. He suggests thinking about it like a bank account. We've long overdrawn, so now with tons of water, it's time to make a deposit. That we could utilize it for irrigation later on. The challenge is figuring out where. The state has recharge pools, places where the ground is porous and water sinks back to the aquifers fast, But with so much water this year and only so many pools, the state is pushing another approach, flooding farms. Right now we're at a 40-acre vineyard in Madera County, and these are wine grapes. Nick Davis is a farmer who's on board to flood fields. His wine grapes just north of Fresno are flooded. That's the water you hear in the background. Think of a column of water eight feet tall that's been uh, landed on top of this ground and then recharged our groundwater. Madera's irrigation district has been offering water to farmers here for free an incentive for growers to do just this. But it's not a universal fix. Davis's grapevines can handle the water without dying, and that's not the case for some other crops. So not everybody can do what we're doing here, but that's okay. The ones that can, we need a support in a way, whether it's an incentive or a gold star or a trophy. You know. Something, he says, to make it worth growers' time. This is something the state has been trying to figure out for almost a decade. It passed legislation in 2014 requiring local agencies to bring the state's groundwater savings account back into balance. But don't tell that to Dino Giacomazzi. They talk about this theoretical future where we're going to be capturing water, except for now it's here and we're not capturing. Giacomazzi is a fourth generation farmer in the southern Central Valley. He grows almonds, corn, wheat and tomatoes. For pizza sauce. And he's exaggerating a little about the water. California is trying to capture a lot of this year's floodwaters. The state's governor, Gavin Newsom, signed an executive order aimed at fast-tracking new recharge projects. Still, in this area, Giacomazzi says... The condition we find ourselves in right now is that there are, you know, billions of gallons of water just flowing right through us, right on by, and heading down and filling the Tulare Lake. That's the reborn lake that's formed in a long-drained basin that's now threatening communities and flooding farmland. Giacomazzi would happily take some of that water and flood his own cropland. He says many other farmers in the area would do the same. But he says there's no group or person organizing that kind of effort. I mean, it's really a lack of leadership, I think, is the problem. You know, every couple of miles in this state, it's a completely different 
independently operated situation. That's part of what Daniel Mountjoy with the nonprofit Sustainable Conservation is trying to fix. There's the opportunity upstream for us to divert water out on the farms, but nobody in this area knows what that looks like. His organization is working with farmers like Nick Davis to show others it can be done. But Mountjoy says there needs to be more incentives for farmers to do this. What do you think it'll look like or should look like? I think it'd be a combination of water credits. You put water in the aquifer. It's a deposit. You get more back out. And maybe, he says, paying farmers to flood their fields instead of growing crops, making the valley look more like it did before it was developed to have a sustainable future. Nathan Rott, NPR News, California Central Valley. The largest book publisher in the country has joined forces with PEN America to push back against book banning. As NPR's Netta Ulubi reports, Penguin Random House is part of a coalition, including parents and authors, that filed a federal lawsuit today challenging bans in one Florida county. Escambia County in northwest Florida has removed or restricted at least 16 books from public school libraries and classrooms. They range from a Nobel Prize winner's first novel to a popular coming-of-age bestseller that came out in the 1990s. I really want to turn things around this year. The Perks of Being a Wallflower was also a hit movie. But last fall, a local high school teacher challenged it and more than 100 other books. Christian activists testified at multiple school board meetings. It's not censorship to not have a bunch of erotic, sexually explicit books in school. That's Pensacola parent Aaron Schneer at the meeting, where school board member Kevin Adams voted to remove Perks of Being a Wallflower from an optional 12th grade novel study. What is our standard for ensuring good conduct and manners for our students? Well, I can't even repeat some of the stuff that's here into this mic, or I wouldn't, <laughs> because of the values I have. That violates the First Amendment. Suzanne Nossel runs Penn America. Over the past two years, the free speech group has documented more than 4,000 cases of books being banned or removed. This lawsuit was filed, she says, because the Scambia County's case was so egregious. It was time to really call it out in detail. And we have a group of plaintiffs, including parents who are affected, students who are affected, Penguin Random House, a publisher that is affected. And we've come together to say we need the courts to step in and uphold our constitutional rights. Among the plaintiffs is writer Ashley Hope Perez. Her best-selling book, Out of Darkness, traces a love affair between a Mexican-American girl and an African-American boy. So exactly how banned is Perez? My seven-year-old would answer the question. My mom is super banned. In dozens of places, including Escambia County. Perez says there's a pattern where books like hers are targeted by book removal groups, including Moms for Liberty that offer talking points. There's little evidence of having actually engaged with the books themselves and a lot of copying and pasting. So you see the same typos, for example. Paris says she would prefer discussions to lawsuits. But at this critical moment, she says the tools of democracy work too. Young people do not want sanitized narratives. They want opportunities to talk about difficult issues and to imagine lives that are different than their own. The Escambia School Board said last month it's pausing book challenges indefinitely. No one from the school board replied to NPR's requests for comment. Neto Ulibi, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, two high-stakes showdowns in Washington, budget talks and the debt crisis, both have veterans funding at their core. Also ahead, just ahead in fact, a doctor who has helped cancer patients find emotional help through psychedelics. Now he's dealing with his own terminal diagnosis. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Wall Street stocks got a lift today. The Dow rose about one and a quarter percent. S&P picked up a little less, one and two tenths percent. And the Nasdaq grew by a little more, one and three tenths percent. Rhode Island-based CVS Health is closing its clinical trial business. It launched the effort two years ago to recruit and enroll participants in trials for potential medical treatments. CVS says the decision this week comes after it evaluated the businesses against the long-term strategic priorities for CVS. Business news on Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animals in need by donating to animal welfare organizations, rehabilitation farms, wildlife centers, and nonprofit rescue organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Listen to a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. Violation is the story about two families and an unthinkable crime that's bound them together for decades. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. Bright, breezy, pretty gorgeous this afternoon. Chilly overnight tonight, down in the mid-30s, still windy. Then tomorrow, sunny skies again, a little bit milder, up in the mid-60s. 56 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Over the past two decades, the view of psychedelic drugs in the U.S. has transformed dramatically. Substances that were deemed to have no medical use have now been shown to provide real and lasting benefit to patients with depression, addiction issues, and PTSD. Johns Hopkins professor Roland Griffiths has been at the center of that transformation, and he spoke with NPR's Rachel Martin about the legacy of his work. Do you use the expression trips? Trip? No. Uh-uh. Oh, you don't? Okay. No, no. Because it just has all of that association, the baggage from the 1960s. That was not your scene. That was absolutely not my scene. Yeah. Roland Griffiths is as surprised as anyone about the direction his career has taken. He made a name for himself studying the addictive qualities of certain medications, like sleeping pills. But over time, he started dabbling with meditation. And that made him deeply curious about consciousness. So when he had the opportunity to study the psychedelic drug psilocybin, sometimes called magic mushrooms, Griffiths was intrigued. The first clinical trials he ran involved giving psilocybin to terminal cancer patients. As it turns out, the effects were nothing short of astonishing. In this cohort of people who met criteria for clinically significant depression or anxiety, uh, 
with a single dose of psilocybin under these kinds of supported conditions, anxiety and depression dropped immediately and markedly hmm. and enduringly. That was the most important feature. So in that study, we followed people up at six months and they remained with very low symptom profiles. Can you articulate what they said to you about how did that alleviate their anxiety? I do recall one man who had the psilocybin experience I'm now hesitant to give this example, but I will. He came to believe in the reality of God. And it wasn't that he was filled with spiritual language. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, God's going to save me. No. It was an acceptance for his condition and a reassurance to the people he loved most that everything was as it should be. Everything was okay. Mm -hmm. If I may ask, why were you reticent to share that example? It's <laughs> it's the God language. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, we're all sort of limited by our language, right? Maybe some people use the word God because we don't know what other words to ascribe to these certain kind of ideas or experiences. Or I think that's precisely it. I mean, for, for me personally, we live in the midst of this astonishing mystery. And we don't have a coherent scientific explanation of what's going on. The thing that we understand best about our experience of sentience is that we are aware that we're aware. You have found yourself on the other side of this whole thing, <laughs> as someone who is contemplating these very existential questions with new urgency. Yeah, I went in for a screening colonoscopy, thinking myself to be completely healthy, uh, taking very good care of myself and coming out with, as it turns out, a stage four cancer colon diagnosis. For me, the diagnosis, as unlikely as it seems, has been a call to celebration. And my wife and I have been in that mode in spite of you know, multiple surgeries and stuff like that. Do you plan to take psilocybin at any point? No, I initially, I actually didn't want to touch a psychedelic um, because I was concerned it would somehow altered the state of sabotage <laughs> this this yeah. very healthy appreciative yeah. mental yeah, right. clarity you had yeah right huh and so there actually came a point where i thought i wonder if i'm defending against something here i wonder if my reason for refusing to take a psychedelic is that i'm masking something over that there's a skeleton in my closet here and I'm saying I'm joyful and I have all this equipoise and everything is beautiful, you know. So I decided, okay, so I'll take a dose of psychedelic and do that very inquiry. Yeah. Uh, it was LSD. And how'd it uh, go? <laughs> fantastic. Uh, Did it? Yeah. I addressed the cancer itself and said, 
you know, I've considered you a blessing. I, I actually really respect everything that's occurred to me since mm -hmm. this diagnosis. I truly am grateful for the, for the diagnosis. I said, but, but do you have to kill me? <laughs> mm, whoa. And the answer was, um, yeah, you're going to die, but this is as it should be. There's a, There's a deeper, there's a deeper meaning, there's a deeper purpose to this. And you should continue to do exactly what you're doing. And I felt implied by that that I should speak out more broadly about what I was g going through. Then I said, <laughs> now I'm talking to cancer. I said, but okay, so I have something to say here. How about giving me some more time? <laughs> I like that you went for the follow-up. I, I like went, that you pressed. I, I went to the follow-up. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you get the opportunity? Yeah. <laughs> but... I got radio silence. <laughs> it didn't answer. No. Uh, but that was it. And, you know, who knows? Uh, was I dialoguing with the cancer? No. That doesn't fit within my worldview. Some people would say I was. But it was deeply affirming to what I was doing. And actually, after that... It validated that, it how you felt you were walking through the process. Not only did it validate it, it... Uh, it felt like an empowerment to speak up about it in a way that I had to get this message out. My parting invitation is... Please. Yeah, is to celebrate. I mean, I'm inviting you to celebrate what I'm celebrating, and that is this experience of the miracle of where we find ourselves. And you needn't have a terminal diagnosis to lean much more fully into that than you possibly could believe. And I promise you it's worth it. <laughs> that was Roland Griffiths speaking with NPR's Rachel Martin as part of the Enlighten Me series. Griffiths has established a professorship fund at Johns Hopkins University to ensure the study of psychedelics continues for generations to come. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's dry and windy out there that makes conditions pretty friendly to fire. There's a red flag warning in effect until 8 tonight. Brush fires can start and spread rapidly. Windier and chillier than it's been all week. In fact, 57 degrees now should fall all the way to the mid-30s overnight tonight. A cold wind blowing, then tomorrow inching up to the mid-60s. Friday should rise to the low 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 57 degrees at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app.
Commercial real estate is cratering. More than 20% of office space vacant in cities like Los Angeles and Chicago as workers stay remote. Nationwide, vacancy rates are higher than they were at the height of the 2008 financial crisis. We've had a ton of busts since the 1980s, but what we're seeing right now is something that we really haven't seen in decades at all. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis today signed into law a slate of bills aimed at restricting LGBTQ rights. NPR's Melissa Block says among those laws is one that bans gender-affirming medical care for minors. DeSantis signed the bills at a Christian school standing behind a sign that said, Let Kids Be Kids. One law criminalizes providing gender-affirming medical care, such as puberty blockers and hormones, for minors, and it restricts such care for adults. Another law requires people to use bathrooms that align with their sex assigned at birth. Still another says teachers and students can't be required to use another person's chosen pronouns. Here's Governor DeSantis. We're not doing the pronoun Olympics in Florida. It's not happening here. And so DeSantis is expected to announce a presidential run and has been campaigning hard on conservative legislation. Melissa Block, NPR News. In Georgia, a Republican nominated to chair the election board in the state's most populous county has withdrawn following backlash from Democrats. That appointment would have given Republicans a majority in the heavily Democratic Fulton County. From member station WABE, Sam Greenglass has more. Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts' first pick for the job was former GOP Commissioner Lee Morris. Pitts, who is a Democrat, had said Morris would not bow to Republican election deniers. But before the vote, Pitts relayed a letter from Morris saying he would step back. It is clear that my nomination has become divisive and that my service would continue to be divisive which is the last thing I want for our county. Ultimately, the commission appointed lawyer Patrice Perkins Hooker for the job instead. Fulton has been a target for false election fraud claims since 2020. That's one reason Democrats raised red flags about who controls the board. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two federal ethics investigations find U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins abused her power when she sought to influence a local election and when she attended a Democratic political fundraiser. The results of the probes into the state's top law enforcement official were released today. Rollins announced yesterday that she will resign. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more. The Department of Justice's inspector general says Rollins attended a fundraiser in Andover with First Lady Jill Biden against the advice of her own staff. The report also finds the former Suffolk District Attorney leaked private DOJ information during an election to smear interim Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden and help her preferred successor, Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. Civil Liberties Attorney Harvey Silverglate says it's rare to see such clear violations by Senate-confirmed federal officials. She thought that she was operating in Suffolk County, Massachusetts, when she was operating in the United States of America. Rollins' lawyer says she'll speak after she officially resigns. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. In a statement this afternoon, Rollins attorney Michael Bromwich said most of the allegations in the report amount to, quote, minor process fouls. He says Rollins could have fought the matter but had no interest in litigating them any further. Governor Moore Healy is pledging to double the amount of money the state will spend to replace the Cape Cod Canal bridges. Her staff says the state will provide up to $700 million to build new Bourne and Sagamore bridges. President Biden has proposed $350 million in federal money for the project in the next fiscal year. Previous state applications for federal funding have been denied in part due to questions about how much of the project the state will cover. Total cost of the project, $4 billion. A long-delayed transmission line that would bring Canadian hydroelectric power to the New England power grid is one step closer to becoming reality. The state of Maine says it's lifted a suspension order against New England Clean Energy Connect's $1 billion project. The state stopped work on the project in 2021. That was after Maine voters passed a ballot question to block it over environmental concerns. A jury ruled last month the state did not have the right to do so. Massachusetts environmental officials are applauding the project's resumption. The transmission line will supply enough electricity to power some one million homes. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. A lovely evening. Clear skies tonight. Cold all the way down to the mid-30s tonight. And for tomorrow, sunny, a little milder, up in the mid-60s. 56 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, Distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Veterans depend on timely government funding for things like medical care and disability checks. In a few minutes, we'll hear from vets about their concerns as the deadline approaches to avoid a default on America's debt. In the meantime, the haggling over the debt ceiling has caused President Biden to cut short a planned tour of Pacific nations. He's on a plane to Japan right now for talks with world leaders at the G7 summit, but he's headed back to Washington on Sunday and canceling visits to other nations, and that's caused some disappointment across the Pacific. NPR Scott Detrow is in Hiroshima. Hi, Scott. Hey, Ari. Oh, one of the stops that Biden canceled was a quick visit to Papua New Guinea. Why was he planning to go there? This would have been a three-hour stop on the way from Japan to Australia. And like so many other things on this trip, it was all about China. China has been aggressively courting Pacific Island nations like Papua New Guinea, spending a lot of money building up their infrastructure and cutting new trade deals. And that has really alarmed the U.S. and Australia, who've been trying to scramble and provide their own aid and show that they are also reliable partners. So what does the abrupt cancellation of this trip do for that effort? 
I had been speaking to Mahalo Laville about all of this. He teaches at the University of Papua New Guinea, and he'd been closely following China's outreach to the region. And he says so much was riding on this visit. You know, for instance, Papua New Guinea had declared a national holiday and mobilized a lot of resources to make it happen. And he says now this sends a message that perhaps the U.S. isn't serious about strengthening its ties to Pacific Island nations. It really signals the fact that the U.S. views the Pacific as really insignificant as compared to a nation like China, whose president has visited PNG in the past and has met with Pacific Island nation leaders in the Pacific. What does the White House say in response to that criticism? They are pretty defensive. Uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan fielded a lot of questions about this on Air Force One earlier today. He argues that Biden hosted the leaders at the White House just months ago, that he plans to do it again this year. He argued there have been investments in humanitarian relief and climate, things like that. And more broadly, Sullivan was saying Biden has invested a lot of time in relationships and agreements with a long list of leaders from the Indo-Pacific. But I think there is a degree of fairly dramatic overcranking and saying that pushing off a visit to Australia and PNG speaks to the fundamentals of American diplomacy at this time. But the G7 is still on the schedule in Hiroshima, where you are. Of course, that is the site of the first ever atomic bombing. How is that going to factor into the summit's events? Excuse me, into the you summit's know, events. Yeah. Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida does represent Hiroshima in the country's legislature, but he has also said that he wants to hold the G7 here to focus attention on the dangers of nuclear threats at this moment of increased nuclear concerns around the world, particularly with Russia. Uh, Several Japanese officials have said there's been 77 years without nuclear weapons being used. They want to make sure that continues. And I think there will certainly be outsized attention at what Biden, as the head of the U.S., the country that used those weapons here, what he does and says. But the Biden administration has really been trying to downplay that angle. Biden and the other G7 leaders will visit the city's peace memorial to begin the conference. That's that iconic A-bomb dome, the one building that survived the blast. Uh, Jake Sullivan said that Biden will lay a wreath at the peace memorial with other leaders, but that Biden will not be speaking He says he'll pay his respects as a G7 leader, but this is not a moment for the U.S. to be at the center of attention. I'm very curious to see whether Biden says or does anything impromptu in that moment after after he goes there and after he potentially meets with some survivors of the blast. And what else is on his agenda? They will be talking about Ukraine like so many of these global summits have done in recent years. Likely, we will hear about some new U.S. sanctions on Russia, also some new agreements among leaders to enforce existing sanctions. There's also going to be some uh, talk about countries supporting reconstruction in Ukraine. And one big wild card is how and whether we will hear from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Um, He has been making tours to several countries in the last few days, uh, pushing for more aid and support. We're hearing there will be some sort of engagement with him here at the G7, but the details are still under wraps. That is NPR Scott Detrow in Hiroshima waiting for the president. Uh, Good morning to you and good evening to us. Thanks, Scott. All Things Considered is my favorite morning show. Thanks. Veterans funding is at the heart of two high-stakes showdowns in Washington right now, budget talks and the impending default on America's debt. If the U.S. does default, as soon as June 1st, the VA could be short of cash. And as NPR's Quill Lawrence reports, that would come at an immediate cost to millions of veterans who get health care and disability checks each month. I caught Jesse Reynolds at his home, which is his truck. I was in Utah, and I'm going towards um, Flagstaff. You know, I live in my truck in this little 
camper thing. Reynolds served 14 years. A head injury cut short his time with Navy SEALs. And now he's trying to figure out life as a civilian. You know, this last year and a half has just been trying to, you know, find myself again, trying to uh, just keep myself alive. He's been taking classes online, living in his truck with his two dogs. His VA disability check is his only income right now. And if it were late, he'd feel the pain right away. I can't imagine, to be honest with you. Um, It would just be, hope I have enough to feed the dogs and and myself maybe get two bags of dog food one for them one for me a lot of people have been asking what does this mean for me what does this mean for my benefits patrick murray is legislative director for the vfw and our first answer is we don't really know because we've never had this happen before that's because the u.s government has never defaulted before if it does it could mean late checks and troops and veterans missing rent or mortgages or car payments and it could hit the people who serve those veterans says murray it could affect the pay of federal workers who process va claims you know are the va doctors and nurses murray says he hopes the debt ceiling isn't being used as a bargaining chip in the other showdown where republicans are trying to cut the budget Republican House Veterans Affairs Chairman Mike Bost says emphatically he's a veteran and he won't cut the funding. As a father of a veteran and a grandfather of a veteran and a grandson of a veteran and a son of a veteran and a nephew of a veteran, you better believe that I'm dead serious that we're not cutting veterans and I mean it. Boss says Democrats in the White House are scaring vets for political gain. And yet... With no regard for the impact of their words, they continue to speak lies about how House Republicans are cutting veterans' benefits, and it's false. But then yesterday, House Republicans put out a bill that keeps veterans' funding level, but moves about $15 billion from a massive new program to help veterans suffering from toxic exposures, and makes it discretionary funding. Allison Jaslow with Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America says that means it can be cut annually. And she's one of the veterans who might be affected. The PACT Act was passed last year uh, to help care for veterans who have been exposed to toxins, whether it's water at Camp Lejeune that was contaminated or burn pits like the one that I slept next to for 15 months in Iraq. Veterans have gotten a lot of lip service. We've been told that through negotiations that veterans funding isn't on the table. The problem is, is we haven't gotten those guarantees in writing at this point. Which leaves vets like Jesse Reynolds still worried as he drives his truck to his next camping spot for the night. We're, we're kind of uh, expendable, I guess. So it's, uh, it is terrifying to know that, yeah, I could be, I could be really, <laughs> I could be struggling more than I already am really soon. And that's uh, pretty scary. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Sherelle Parker, a former Pennsylvania state representative and former member of the Philadelphia City Council, is expected to be Philadelphia's next mayor after winning Tuesday's Democratic primary. She would be the city's first female mayor. Tom McDonald of member station WHYY joins us now to break down yesterday's vote. Hey, Tom. Hi. Okay, so there were nine candidates in the race going into Tuesday's primary, with four of them in a statistical dead heat, right? What happened yesterday? Well, turnout was low, and it all became an effort to bring out the votes. 
Sherelle Parker, the winner of the contest, had the Democratic Party behind her in the form of workers who hit the streets to knock on the doors and encourage people to come to the polls. Philadelphia political veteran Bill Greenlee describes the victory as one that came as a result of a great deal of grassroots campaigning, coupled with being the only viable black woman in a race who addressed the issues plaguing the city, especially poverty and public safety in a city that's had over 500 homicides in the past two years. Sherelle was straightforward enough to say, look, I think we need more police, you know, and uh, I know progressive, some progressives don't like that, but I think that resonated with people, resonated with, I guess what I would say, the, the regular neighborhood people, you know, which is where she, she got her votes. Well, as we just heard, I mean, some people are saying that this is a setback for progressives since Parker wants to beef up the police force. Uh, She favors stop and frisk, which is a pretty controversial policing tactic. What happened to the candidates that had support from progressives? Well, there were two candidates that fell into that moderate and progressive category. Helen Gim finished third, Rebecca Reinhardt, who came in second. Gim had the high-profile progressives behind her. Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out over the weekend for a big rally, 35,000 mm-hmm. people. She also had the National Teachers Union backing her and the local teachers unions because her roots were an education activist. The other two progressive candidates, those two split the vote, and if all the votes they shared were put together, they would have won the contest. Huh. Outgoing Mayor Jim Kenney explained the victory for Parker as not a loss for progressives. I think that Sherelle has a record and experience with people, that she represents an area of the city that is active voting, and that black women especially uh, wanted to see a a black woman as mayor, and I think they came out and showed that. And I'm very happy about it. Well, even though this was just a primary election, can you just explain why the winner, Sherelle Parker, is expected to be the next mayor of Philadelphia? This was a primary in name only. There is a challenger to Parker. Council member David O will run against her as a Republican. He says he's not the average member of the GOP. I am in the center and have always been here. I did not sign a letter to the mayor to defund the police. I did not vote to reduce the police budget. Now, I don't mind at all reducing the police budget, but I'd have to have a reason why. But Democrats have a seven to one voter registration edge in the city, and there hasn't been a Republican mayor since the 50s. Hmm. Mayor Jim Kenney told reporters this afternoon there isn't any chance Parker's going to lose. Okay, so what has Parker said about her win so far? Actually, nothing. Nothing in person. She was hospitalized last night with complications from a dental issue. Mm. She was sent home this morning and has been silent, with the exception of a statement from her campaign, which said she'll be back out talking to residents in the near future. That is Tom McDonald of member station WHYY. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, there are growing concerns that efforts by Congress to regulate artificial intelligence won't catch up with the technology. That's ahead in just about 15 minutes, but next, a debut novel that follows a young ballerina who becomes her company's first black principal dancer and all that comes along with that. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. 
55 degrees now in the Boston area. A red flag warning is in effect until 8 tonight. Be careful of the fire risk that comes along with windy and dry conditions, which is exactly what we have right now. Overnight tonight, you may need the blanket. It's going to be down to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, bright again and milder, rising to the mid-60s. It's 549. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Andy Cohen leads a really full life. In addition to his talk show on Bravo, he's the executive producer of 11 reality shows. He's an author. He's a dad. Everything has changed. My access has changed. My priorities have changed. The way I live my life every day. Andy Cohen's Daddy Diaries, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Nicole Cuffey loves to dance and the art of ballet. She also loves a nightly bath where sometimes ideas come to her, like in May of 2015. I just had this craving to immerse myself in the world of dance. Cuffey decided to turn that craving into a novel about the first Black woman promoted to principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater, an idea that quickly proved prescient. Out kind of thought to myself at the time, well, what about Misty Copeland, you know? But I was like, "Ah, I don't think they're going to promote her anytime soon. And then in August of that same year, Misty Copeland was promoted as the first Black female principal at the American Ballet Theater. So Nicole Cuffey switched gears and placed her protagonist, 22-year-old Cece Cordell, at another company. There is a lot of sort of contending with the fact of Misty Copeland in this book, because I did not think that I could write fiction about a Black ballerina without a acknowledging the reality. I thought that would be too big and uh, a suspension of disbelief. Between the very real Misty Copeland and the fictional dancer Cece Cordell, Nicole Cuffey had a lot of space to explore tensions in the dance world. The lack of diversity, the push and pull of creative freedom, the preferred aesthetics for dancers' bodies. As a young girl, I took ballet classes and there just weren't a lot of other young Black girls at the time who were taking ballet and being taken seriously in ballet. And as a lifelong lover of dance, you know, I've been to the ballet several, several times. It's frankly very rare even to this day to see someone who looks like me centered on the stage in a principal role or in a role that positions that dancer as beautiful and worth saving. So I was always very acutely aware of these issues in the ballet world, but when Misty Copeland was promoted, those conversations were sort of accelerated. So people started talking a lot more about how we weren't seeing women of color really being valued in the classical and neoclassical ballet worlds. And that's something that I think Cece is definitely in conversation with a lot as well. How does she sort of deal with being the first one to be centered in the ballet world in this specific company? And how does she sort of enter into this conversation when really for her it's all about the dance it's all about the movement and it's all about the music but it can't be just that for her because she is a black dancer Hmm. I mean throughout the story we see Cece working so hard all the time to prove other people's wrong it's almost as if she's working twice as hard as everyone else around her and I think that's a sentiment that most people of color can relate to but what do you think that does to Cece as a dancer 
Well, I think that dancers tend to have to be very hyper aware of their own bodies. But in a dancer like Cece, who has all of this other weight piled on her role, she's even more so. So there's a scene where she's dancing in in the studio with the other dancers in the company. And she's very aware of her body in the mirror and how different it looks from her coworkers and how she's sweating more than everybody else that she can see and how she is shaped differently than everybody in the room and how she might be moving differently than everybody else in the room. So there's just this very almost neurotic hyper-awareness of her own body in relation to that of the white dancers around her. This book is about ballet, but there's also this mystery woven throughout it involving Cece's brother, Paul, who struggles with addiction and ultimately disappears. Can you tell us a bit about that part of your book? Yeah. So with Paul and Cece, we have the story of two artists. And what I'm really exploring there is how being consumed by your passion or consumed by your art is really sort of this knife's edge where you can kind of fall one way, which is the way of success and recognition as an artist, or you can fall in the other direction, which is you are completely consumed to the point that it becomes self-destructive. And with Cece, we see somebody who has fallen the first way. She's fallen in a way that's brought her a lot of success and that's brought her recognition as an artist. But with her brother, Paul, we see that he's fallen on the other side of that knife's edge and he's really kind of been consumed in a way that has led to a path of self-destruction. And I think that, you know, Cece and Paul are both very, very aware of that balancing act. And so their interplay together is very much characterized by that. They're kind of mutually inspiring to each other. Cece often appears in Paul's artwork and Paul is really the one who is inspiring her to dance in the first place and then supports her early career. And so we have this sort of beautiful brother-sister relationship that is also a relationship between two different types of artists. The other relationship that I found really interesting in this book is the relationship between Cece and her mother, where you have this daughter who all she wants is to dance, and a mother who very clearly and explicitly tells her that she wants her to follow a more practical route. You know, dancing, she's, she doesn't see it as a serious career. Yeah, I think Cece's mother, when I think of her character and her motivation, mostly what I think about is fear for one's child. Cece's mother is very Black identified and very intentionally culturally Black. And so she is probably more aware than maybe even Cece herself of how hostile white spaces can be to Black people. And she sees her daughter entering into a predominantly, a famously predominantly white space. And I think it terrifies her. So she pushes her towards this practical path because she's scared for her daughter and her mental health entering into this kind of hostile and very exclusionary space. There's a section from the opening chapter of your book that stuck with me, and you wrote, I'm quoting it here, ballet has always been about the body, the white body specifically. So they watched my black body, waited for it to confirm their prejudices, grew ever more anxious as it failed to do so again and again. And this is really one of the main themes of the novel is Cece trying to find her way as a black dancer in this overwhelmingly white world. What were you trying to say to the dance world with this novel and this character's journey? Keep having the conversation and have it more frankly and more openly and more forcefully. I'm glad that we're 
talking about these things, I'm glad to see that we're being a lot more thoughtful about people of color in the classical and neoclassical communities. But I do think that progress has been very tentative and there's been this sort of resistance in the form of adherence to what people call tradition. And you see that a lot, particularly in classical ballet, there's this fidelity to tradition. And when I hear people talk about tradition in the classical ballet world, all I hear is a fidelity to whiteness. So we want to see white people centered on the stage. We want to hear about white stories. We want to hear about European folk tales in the form of story ballets. We don't want to see anybody else coming in and disrupting that white space. And I think it's really fear-based more than anything else. So I think what Cece does is she has to learn over the course of this novel to let go of some of her fear. And I think that's what the ballet world needs to do as well. It needs to let go of some of its fear. We've been speaking with Nicole Cuffey. Her debut novel is Dances. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics take on the Miami Heat in Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals tonight at the Garden. The same two teams met last year in the Conference Finals. The Celts won. The winner of this series will play for the NBA Championship. Tip-off is at 8.30 tonight. And it's the finale for the Red Sox and Mariners at Fenway Park tonight. Each team has won one game. Brian Bayo pitches for the Sox. Marco Gonzalez for Seattle. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, committed to knowing the lay of the land, not just the law. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is advancing with breathtaking speed. I don't think anybody has a good sense of what's possible even 12 months from now, much less a few years from now. There are growing concerns that efforts by Congress to regulate AI will not keep pace with the technology. It's Wednesday, May 17th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a former federal prosecutor weighs in on the accusations that U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins violated some basic rules of her office. You can't actively engage in a partisan campaign for political office. That includes fundraising. That includes giving political and campaign advice. The allegations against Rollins as she prepares to step down. Also a new warning that the climate may breach 1.5 degrees of warming in five years. 
It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Immigration authorities say the number of migrant encounters climbed to more than 200,000 in April. NPR's Joel Rose reports that was before the end of the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42. Border officials recorded roughly 211,000 migrant encounters in April. That was about 10 percent higher than the number for March, though still well below the busiest months of 2022. The number of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border climbed sharply in early May to a record-setting pace of more than 10,000 per day. And there were fears that the numbers could go even higher when the pandemic restrictions known as Title 42 expired. But that hasn't happened so far. Instead, the number of migrants crossing the border is down more than 50 percent from the days before Title 42 ended. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. A resolution calling for reparations for black Americans has been introduced in the House. But as NPR's Alana Wise reports, it faces a tough journey in Congress. The reparations bill is sponsored by Representative Cory Bush, a Missouri Democrat. The resolution calls for $14 trillion to go to black Americans. It's just the latest in a long line of efforts to have the federal government atone for the enslavement of black Americans and centuries of racist policies. But polls show a majority of Americans oppose reparations for the descendants of slaves. And it's not clear if Bush's resolution will ever be brought to a vote. Alana Wise, NPR News, Dis- Washington. Disgrace Therno CEO Elizabeth Holmes has lost her bid to stay out of prison. An appeals court rejecting her bid to remain free while she works to overturn a conviction in connection with her failed blood testing company. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court ruling coming nearly three weeks after Holmes de- deployed a last-minute initiative aimed at delaying the start of her 11-year prison term. Judges ordered she pay $452 million in restitution to victims. Holmes will start her prison term May 30th. Russia says it will extend a deal backed by the U.N. and Turkey to allow the shipment of Ukraine's grain exports through the Black Sea. Moscow NPR's Charles Maines has details. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, announced a two-month extension of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, thanking the leaders of Russia and Ukraine for a deal Erdogan called good news for countries in need. The U.N. and Turkey initially brokered the agreement last summer to help ease a global food crisis exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. Russia had been threatening to exit the deal over complaints the agreement helped Ukraine but failed to ease restriction on Russian agricultural exports. Russia's foreign ministry said those concerns remained and called for distortions in the deal to be addressed quickly. Ukraine and its Western allies counter key Russian food exports are making it to market and accuse the Kremlin of weaponizing the global food supply. Charles Mains, NPR News, Moscow. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 408 points today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Justice Department is out with its ethics report on U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins. The report alleges Rollins used her position to try to influence the outcome of the Suffolk DA's race last year by saying that by leaking information to sabotage the campaign of the interim DA, Kevin Hayden, a separate report by another federal watchdog found Rollins violated the Hatch Act that bars federal officials from partisan political activity. She's also accused of accepting 30 free tickets to a Boston Celtics game and using her personal cell phone for Justice Department business. 
Rollins' attorney issued a statement today saying that most of the allegations amount to minor process fouls and that his client could have fought but chose not to. Rollins is announced to resign by the end of the week as the state's top federal law enforcement official. WBR's Deborah Becker will have more on this case at 6.20. Federal prosecutors say the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret government documents was previously ordered by his superiors to stop writing down notes about classified information. Jack Teixeira had access to the trove of secrets through his intelligence job at Joint Base Cape Cod. Prosecutors want Teixeira to uh, held as he awaits trial on Espionage Act charges. In a court filing today, they argued that he should be held in part because his alle- alleged actions in, are in defiance of those earlier orders. His defense attorneys have asked him to be released to his father's custody. A hearing on that matter is set for Friday. And a new brush fire broke out in the Saugus portion of the Lynn Woods Reservation today. Chief Fire Warden for the Department of Conservation and Recreation Dave Salino says it involves 190 acres and is 70 percent contained. It's anchored to a body of water on the south side and some really good solid hard-packed trails around the north side of it. However, it's a large area. There's going to be a lot of smoldering in there. Again, that'll go into monitor status, but uh, the crews did a great job. Salino says a separate fire in the Breakheart Reservation in Saugus has burned about 22 acres and is also about 70 percent contained. A red flag warning for high fire risk remains in effect in most of the state until 8 tonight. Salino says rain this weekend and diminishing winds will help efforts to fight the brush fires. It is 54 degrees now in the Boston area, pretty chilly overnight tonight, down in the mid-30s, a cold wind blowing, and tomorrow inching to the mid-60s, a beautiful sunny day once again. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Generally speaking, businesses don't ask Congress to regulate them. So it was striking yesterday to hear one of the most prominent executives in artificial intelligence say this. We think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. uh, And we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. That was Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, testifying before a Senate committee yesterday. Artificial intelligence is global, and Congress does not exactly have a reputation for being ahead of the technology curve. So what are the chances lawmakers could get their arms around this, and what would effective regulation look like? Paul Shari studies those exact questions. He is vice president at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Before we look globally, let's talk about what is happening here in the United States. Here's what Democratic Senator Peter Welch of Vermont said yesterday. I've come to the conclusion that it's impossible for Congress to keep up with the speed of technology. Paul, is that true, or do you see a valuable role for Congress to play here? Well, I think both those things can be true. There is definitely a valuable role for Congress, but there's a huge disconnect between the pace of the technology, especially in AI, and the pace of lawmaking. So I think there's a real incentive for Congress to move faster. And that's what we see, I think, members of Congress trying to do here with these hearings is figure out what's going on with AI 
And then what is the role that government needs to play to regulate this? How would you answer that question? What role should government play? I mean, regulation is such a broad and general term. Is there a consensus even among experts here? Well, there's there's certainly not a consensus. And I think part of it is that AI can mean so many different things. It can be facial recognition or AI used in finance or medicine. And there's going to be a lot of industry-specific regulation. One of the things in the topic of the hearing and where some experts are, are starting to talk about is regulating the most powerful AI models. AI models like ChatGPT or the newest version, GPT-4, they're sort of in a different class because there are these very general purpose systems that can do a whole wide variety of tasks. And one of the things that Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, who created these systems, ChatGPT and GPT-4, is calling for is regulations on the technology they're building, which is surprising. Um, and other experts are calling for that as well. And I think that's an area where some special regulatory attention is probably needed. Do you think we're more likely to see Congress do something narrow and specific, like, say, anything that's fake must be labeled as such, or do something broad, like create a body that will, at some point in the future, issue regulations? I mean, pessimistic answer, we're probably likely to see not very much. Um, but I would... <laughs> I mean, if we're being honest, that, that's been the story so far with social media, for example. But I think, you know, if we can get just a couple specific kinds of narrow regulation, there was some talk about a licensing regime for training these very powerful models. That probably makes some sense at this point. And then things like requirements to label AI-generated media, like you mentioned. Um, California's passed a law like this uh, called a Blade Runner law. I love this term uh, that basically says if you're talking to a bot, it has to disclose that it's a bot. That's a pretty sensible regulation. Artificial intelligence is a technology that exists all over the world, and many countries are pursuing it with wild abandon. If the U.S. imposes limitations, is that just going to hamstring the U.S. without actually eliminating the potential for harm? Well, we're going to need to get other countries on board with some kind of global AI governance over time. We're going to have to get other countries to adopt a similar approach. That seems now, even less thing, likely than getting Congress to agree on something. You're talking about Russia, China, like the U.S. all saying, here's the rules we're collectively going to agree to. I mean, Russia's pulling out of nuclear treaties. You think they're going to sign on to an AI treaty? Well, so here's the thing. The U.S. has leverage over what other countries are going to do with these very powerful AI systems because they require these very specialized chips to train the most powerful models. And those chips use U.S. technology. And so we've always seen the U.S. put in place export controls on these chips. And that's a point of leverage that the U.S. can have over other countries accessing this technology where, hey, if you don't agree to these rules and safety standards, you can't get access to the hardware you need to actually build and train these systems. Hmm. During the hearings yesterday, Missouri Republican Josh Hawley asked whether AI is more like a printing press or an atom bomb? Is it a useful or a deadly technology? Your research focuses on AI and the military. Do you think it's hyperbolic to compare something like, I don't know, ChatGPT to a weapon that could kill huge numbers of people immediately? Well, I don't think ChatGPT is there, but one of the fears is what's coming next and the pace of AI development. And we've seen really astonishing gains in just the last 12 months or so. I don't think anybody has a good sense of what's possible even 12 months from now, much less a few years from now. And so would you choose printing press or atom bomb? Which do you think it's more like? Ooh, well, I mean, maybe nuclear technology is not a bad comparison because there are good uses like nuclear energy, but also bad uses like atom bombs. So what do you think 
a scenario without guardrails looks like a decade or so down the road. I mean, what what's your nightmare, whether it's, I don't know, killer robots coming for us all or something totally different from that? I think one of the risks is that we see wide proliferation of very powerful AI systems that are general purpose that can do lots of good things and lots of bad things. And we see some bad actors use them for things like helping to design better chemical or biological weapons or cyber attacks. And it's really hard to defend against that if there aren't guardrails in place and if anyone can access this just as easily as anyone can hop on the internet today. And so thinking about how do we control proliferation, how do we ensure the systems that are being built are safe is really essential. Paul Shari's latest book is called Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When we talk about climate change, there's a number that keeps coming up, a threshold. It's 1.5 degrees Celsius, or a little under 3 degrees Fahrenheit. In 2015, countries pledged to try to keep global warming to under an average of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Well, a new report from the World Meteorological Organization gives us a two-in-three chance to exceed that mark in the next five years. Tropical island nations will be among those most impacted by sea level rise and more powerful hurricanes. Colin Young joins me now from Belize. He's executive director of the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center. Welcome. Thank you, Elsa. Let me just start with, do you have any initial reactions to this report that there's a sizable chance we are going to exceed this 1.5 degree mark pretty soon? Well, I, I think the writing was on the wall that unless we saw the kind of committed actions and increased ambition from countries that are largely responsible for greenhouse gas emissions that this would happen. I think what the report did was to now put some likelihood numbers, Mm -hmm. and that is quite shocking. Well, one caveat. I mean, this report says that this could only be a temporary breach of 1.5 degrees, and it has to do in part because of the projected emergence of El Nino, a natural weather phenomenon. Does that caveat give any hope to you? No, I, it does not. Uh, I think there you have to look at the report in its totality. And while it made very clear reference to the fact that this is a temporary projection, it also says that there's a 98% chance that the next five years will be the warmest on record. Mm-hmm. So the trend is that everything is going in the wrong direction for us. I mean, given that richer countries are contributing the most to climate change and have the most ability to do something about this problem, what policy initiatives would you like to see happen to pressure these wealthier countries to do more to slow down climate change? Well, Elsa, we have the Paris Agreement. The science is absolutely clear in terms of what we need to do. We need to cut global emissions by 45% by 2030, and we need to reach net zero by 2050. But rather than countries pursuing the kind of ambition that is required in terms of cutting emissions, we're seeing emissions going the wrong direction. It's actually increasing. We're seeing countries that are now embracing fossil fuel that is adding to the problem. And so as a region that is one of the most vulnerable regions in the world, what needs to be done uh, lacks the political will. And as a result of that 
rhetoric from the countries who are most responsible, mm -hmm. then our region remains and is suffering at the front lines of climate change. We will continue to agitate. <laughs> we will continue to demand. But, you know, talk alone will not get us to where we need to be. Putting aside what can wealthier countries do to slow down climate change, in the meantime, what do you think rich countries should do to help poorer countries deal with the effects of climate change now? What would you like to see? I would like to see that we live up to the Paris Agreement, where countries had promised to deliver $100 billion U.S. dollars per year to assist vulnerable countries to adapt to the effects of climate change. We have failed in that regard. On the, on the technology side, the Paris Agreement also provides for technology transfer that can help our countries, again, to increase the adaptive capacity uh, to the effects of, of climate change. Mm -hmm. so at the end of the day, climate change is responsible for a significant portion of the debt that our countries find ourselves in, we lack the fiscal space to adapt. And the rate of increase in warming is so fast that the effects of climate change will only worsen. So there's a massive financial gap, right. a capacity gap, and a technology gap that is required to help us adapt. That's what we'd like to see the developed countries do more of. Colin Young, Executive Director of the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center, thank you very much. Thank you, Elsa. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, Target stores are eyeing more discounts as a way to lure shoppers, but for retailers, there's a downside to discounted prices. Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty on stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Wall Street stocks got a lift today. The Dow rose about one and a quarter percent. S&P picked up a little bit less, one and two tenths percent. NASDAQ grew by a little more, one and three tenths percent. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. There's a red flag warning in effect until 8 tonight. Be careful of the risk of fire that comes with the windy and dry conditions. In fact, there are two brush fires burning in Saugus now, one at the Lynn Woods Reservation, another at the Breakheart Reservation. Together, more than 200 acres have been burned. 54 degrees now in the Boston area should fall all the way to the mid-30s overnight tonight. A cold wind blowing. Tomorrow should inch up to the mid-60s. Friday should rise to the low 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual info session May 25th, buacademy.org. 
This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two new scathing federal reports shed light on why Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins has announced that she is resigning this week. The reports say Rollins violated federal ethics laws by engaging in political activity. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been following the story and joins us now to talk about it. Hi, Deb. Hi, Lisa. So these two reports outline new violations uh, by Rollins, some allegations that sound pretty serious. Tell us about them. Yeah, that's right. One is by the Justice Department's Office of the Inspector General. The other is by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, and it described Rollins' political activities as, quote, one of the most egregious violations, end quote, that it's ever investigated. Now, the biggest allegation is that Rollins tried to influence the local political race for her previous post as Suffolk County District Attorney and lied about it. Political activity by federal employees is prohibited under the federal ethics law known as the Hatch Act. And former federal prosecutor Brad Bailey, who is now a criminal defense attorney, says that federal prosecutors are well trained about how that law bars any type of political activity. Let's listen. You can't actively engage in a partisan campaign for political office. That includes fundraising. That includes giving political and campaign advice. And when you look at what what is alleged here and what the inspector general found, that was violated on all sorts of levels and in all sorts of ways. And actually, Lisa Bailey says when he was a federal prosecutor, those in the office were not allowed to even have political bumper stickers for local candidates on their cars. So the involvement in the political race for her successor, Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden, Uh, seem to be the most serious violations. How did she allegedly at least try to influence the race? Well, the federal reports released today say that Rollins leaked non-public Justice Department information to the press to try to harm Suffolk DA Hayden. The reports also say Rollins initially lied about being the leak of that information, but was later found to be the source. The investigations say Rollins worked to help Hayden's opponent in last year's election, Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. The report describes Rollins as being Arroyo's de facto campaign advisor exchanging about 380 texts and encrypted messages with him in the two months leading up to the primary election. Another former federal prosecutor I spoke with, Robert Fisher, who worked with Rollins when she was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office about 15 years ago, says he's surprised by these reports that came out today. And what they suggest to him is that Rollins was having a tough time staying out of politics. Unfortunately for her, she had just come from being Suffolk County DA and, and running an effective campaign and really being a great advocate for the citizens of Boston. And that just doesn't translate to becoming uh, or being the, the U.S. attorney. And we should say, Lisa, that DA Hayden's office has released a statement saying that the report is about the conduct of one individual, and the Suffolk DA maintains a strong relationship with the U.S. attorney's office. There were mentions of other violations as well. What were they? Well, the report describes how Rollins was advised not to attend a political fundraiser with First Lady Jill Biden last year, and she attended anyway. The other violations cited in the Inspector General's report mention Rollins soliciting Boston Celtics tickets for a local youth group and for herself and having unauthorized travel expenses. And what has Rachel Rollins been saying in response to these allegations? 
Well, her attorney released a statement today calling the violations, quote, minor process fouls. Uh, That statement said Rollins was not interested in litigating over the violations outlined in these reports, and she believes the better course is to step down and end the matter. So she said yesterday she's going to be resigning. By doing so, does she avoid criminal charges? Well, that's that's not entirely clear. I mean, some legal advisors say she could be prosecuted uh, if there are charges about lying uh, and, and being involved in an election or trying to influence an election. Some say her license to practice law could be affected or her resignation could be considered enough punishment and she could just depart. If she follows other U.S. attorneys, she, she might take a job in a big law firm. And what happens from here in terms of the office? Well, Rollins uh, said she's submitting a resignation to the president by Friday. Her first assistant, Josh Levy, is expected to take over as interim U.S. attorney. Most of the folks I spoke with expect that an interim will remain at the helm until after the next presidential election, when the president would then determine who to appoint, and then that would have to be confirmed by the Senate. WBR's Deborah Becker, thank you so much. You're welcome. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from listener Bill Price. In the summer of 1972, when Price was 15, he attended a program for academically gifted students from across North Carolina. Later that year, the students gathered for a reunion, and Price remembers standing outside after the event, catching up with friends. And as everyone in his group said their goodbyes, he found himself standing there all alone. And sometimes when you're alone, it's okay. Sometimes when you're alone, you feel bereft and abandoned. And that's the way I felt then. There was a group of uh, kids uh, walking away. Uh, They were laughing and talking, and I found myself wishing so much to be a part of that group. And then one of them turned around and uh, said, would you like to join us? And my life was transformed in that moment. I did join them. We went to a diner somewhere, and I think I ordered half a grapefruit because that's the kind of money I had then. But what transformed my life was not what she did for me, but my realization that I can do that for anyone, that all of us can do that for anyone that it's so easy to see someone who seems left out and alone and notice them, say hello to them, be kind to them. And to the extent that I'm a good person in my life today, it's probably due to Wendy Westman inviting me to join her group and my realization that that is a gift that we can all give. Perhaps not ironically, I wound up being a psychiatrist. So part of my work is being kind to other people. And, you know, that's a lot of what the therapeutic relationship is, is having someone who is listening to you and paying attention to you. I mean, what do we have in our lives except being kind to each other? Uh, And that's perhaps where it started for me was back then when I was 15. Bill Price of Durham, North Carolina. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. 
Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. More than a dozen states have banned gender-affirming care for transgender youth. That's despite studies showing such care can be potentially life-saving. So what do you do when your home state blocks you from accessing that care? Some, like a trans teen in Florida, are picking up and leaving home, even when it's tough for the whole family. That was a mess. I cried the whole way to the airport. I just felt I was going the wrong way. On today's Consider This podcast, the story of how one Florida trans teen with support from her parents decided that the best path forward was to move more than a thousand miles from home. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. Pull up the blankets tonight. Bring in the fragile plants. It should drop to the mid-30s overnight. Then tomorrow, bright sunshine. Temperatures up in the mid-60s. 53 degrees now in Boston at 6.30. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. SemesterOff.com.